I think one of the big problems we have as creative people is is defining ourselves that way. I think if you define yourself, um, you know, in terms of a relationship to something bigger, your family unit, God, something outside, you know, country, something that's outside you, that if you were to go, it would continue. Definitions are boundaries, you know? So as soon as you define yourself, you put a boundary on your ability to be great. And you, and you say, I can only be great within the tiny, tiny area called writing. And if I fail at that, that's the sum total of my existence versus like for me, I'm like, well, I try and think of myself as a dad and a husband and a child of God and things like that. And those I can succeed at whether people are reading my books or not. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker and show host, Parker K. Hey, it's Parker with Upbeat, and I'm joined today by Michael Brent Collings. Thanks so much for joining me on the show, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple years. Yeah, I actually was just looking back at the Facebook pictures, and it was four years ago. Really? Dude, the world's yeah. changed a lot since then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that was right before everything shut down and went to crap. <laughs> yes, right before the barbed wire enema that was that year. So, yeah, just to catch up the listeners, I met Michael Brent Collings at a TEDx event in Rexburg, Idaho. Uh, where you're still in Idaho, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm but not in TEDx. I'm I'm a I'm a metropolitan kind of a guy. So, you know, <laughs> I live outside of Boise, Idaho. Oh, that's where I live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're we're fast, fast, big, bright lights, big city kind of people here in Boise with our what, like 80,000 people or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, it sure feels like it. It's crazy. But <laughs> definitely that Rexburg TEDx event was awesome. And I, yeah. you know, you said some stuff in that speech that, by the way, still helps me today. But also I had an event um that i attended last month that they said some stuff that i remember thinking back to you saying similar things in your tedx talk uh and we can get into it but one particular thing was uh you found hope and horror that yeah. line has has stuck with me but before we get too into the weeds <laughs> on that uh, if you don't mind sharing um just a little bit about you and and your story of entrepreneurship and being a writer in multiple genres and uh, whatever you're up to now too. I like, like I said, it's been four years. So you probably have different yeah. projects you're working on. <laughs> so many things. Yeah. Um, so the short version is I was, I did not want to be an artist or a creative type. I mean, I always enjoyed creating stuff, but I didn't want to have that kind of up and down nomadic lifestyle. So I, I became a lawyer, which was something, you know, four people told me I'd be good at it. So I was like, I guess I'll do that. And <laughs> um, and I became a partner at a law firm and it was kind of like the very typical, it was in Los Angeles. So it was kind of that fast paced existence. And, and then um, my wife got sick and I went from being a full-time partner to like a part-time lawyer while I was being a full-time caretaker for her. Um, at which point, after a couple of months of that, the partners invited me into the office and very kindly invited me to divest myself of, of my interest. And, you know, they booted me, basically. And I, and I can't blame them with the amount of, of time that I wasn't there. Um, so I was out of work and the recession hit and it was right when the bubble burst with, you know, housing and stuff. And, and I couldn't get a new job to save my life. So I, 
I started writing stories, not thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a living so much as I, I can't get a job and I got to do something or I'll blow my brains out. And, um, and it just kind of luckily took off. It wasn't like this. All of a sudden I was the hunger games, but I started making money and, and it snowballed a little bit at a time until I was, you know, making more money as a writer than I had as a lawyer. And, and that's good because once you decide to be, you know, a full-time creative, you become functionally unemployable. It's like, am I going to go back and be a lawyer in 10 years? And they're like, what have you been doing? I don't know. Sitting around thinking of ways to kill people mostly. Um, because that's what I do most. I'm best known for horror, but I write in every genre. I've, I've been very blessed to have success. And literally, if there is a genre, I think the only thing I haven't written a bestseller in is uh, erotica. Like I've even done bestsellers in nonfiction and stuff like that. So um, I've been really, really privileged to to have wonderful readers who kind of are willing to follow me. But my bread and butter is horror. And then um, last year, I kind of closed up shop for a little while. Um, just cause my wife kept getting, we share a computer. So my wife gets ads for me, you know, like she's constantly getting, you know, Viagra and mortgage things. And I'm constantly getting, you know, bra stuff. And, and, uh, but she was getting all these ads for authors that were saying like, I will make you a bestseller. I'll make you a million dollars. And, and I go to their website or on Amazon and they've got three books with a combined total of like eight ratings. And so my first question is always, if you're so good at this, why, why isn't it working for you? Um, and I got really frustrated with that. So my wife finally was like, stop complaining and do, you know, make your own course. So for the last year, I've been doing bestseller life um, at bestsellerlife.com, which is kind of basically it's everything I know about the business of self-publishing and marketing. And, and um, so I've been really knee deep in that, just creating dozens, hundreds actually of lessons and handouts and things. Um, and then getting ready for a book tour next year. Cause I, I actually landed my first traditional publishing deal. Um, I went over to the dark side a little bit, just, there's a friend of mine at a, at a national publisher, um, who's been wanting to work with me for something for a long time. And honestly, traditional publishers offer, and I'm like, I can't, cause it's a pay cut. Like they pay me less than I pay myself. Um, but I've really wanted to work with this gal for a long time and we've been friends. So I'll be, I'll be going on a, a six week book tour for, a book called Grim World, uh, and it's a middle grade fantasy. So I'm just all over the place. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for the thanks for the breakdown. And yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't put two and two together that you were more independent and uh, haven't really done. I guess the traditional publisher way. Yeah. Well, I tried to, cause you know, like that's, that's how everybody thinks, you know, I wanted to be Steven. Well, like I say, there was a lot going on. So I was mostly like, how do I not kill myself today? Um, but I sent out, um, Oh, I think I have it. Hold on. I'll show you this. This is pretty awesome. So I sent out, um, queries to literally every single manager, agent and publisher in North America, not just the United States, everything above Mexico. And this is one of the binders of single page rejections. Um, Whoa. I have another one. Uh, and those are literally <laughs> just single pages saying things ranging from no thank you to it was really good, but not for us to please set fire to yourself and end this travesty before you have a chance to reproduce. <laughs> um, you know, just like a real range. So um, I tried to be trad pub and then it didn't work. And about the time I kind of gave up my friend, I had a friend who was like, hey, have you heard of this Kindle thing? And it was brand new and I and I put it up just thinking, I can't hurt anybody, you know, like my book will sit there. Um, and my first month, I think I sold like three copies and I'm sure they were all to my mom. My mom opened sock puppet accounts, bought all three copies of that book. And I didn't even think about it after that until 
um, a friend of mine emailed and was like, can you have Amazon stop emailing me about your stupid book? I don't want it, you know? <laughs> um, and that was when I found out it was like the number one bestseller in a number of different major categories like horror and sci-fi and thriller and stuff like that. It was, it was number one or top two or three in pretty much every major category around there. So um, that was when I was like, oh, maybe I'll do this. I still don't have a lawyer job, so I might as well see what this does. <laughs> Right. And then, yeah, you've been killing it. And we could probably jump into that TEDx talk a little bit more, too. And uh, I guess I shouldn't even call it just the TEDx talk because this is beyond that. Like, this is just something it's part of your story. It's something that you stand for and that you share with people. Um, but yeah. you've you've struggled deeply with uh, depression and kind of having having a story of facing those demons, you know, and that's what I love about that that kind of one liner finding hope in, in horror is that's kind of what it all encompasses. But how have you been able to, I guess, push through those trying times? Cause I know for a fact there are listeners to this podcast who ride that line sometimes even yeah. every single day. Yeah. What, what advice, I guess, what have you done to help you and what advice would you give to people? I think, you know, the two most important things I could say are, are number one, just, it, I'll tell a silly story. Like when I was young, I said, I discovered the secret of eternal life to my mom. And she goes, what is it? And I said, I've been watching movies. And right before people die, they always do the same thing. They go, tell my wife, I love her or whatever, you know, the last words. And then they go, Ugh. and then they, they die. And I say, so I realize like they need to breathe in. That's what they have to do. And so I'm going to hire someone. If it looks like I'm getting older, I'm weaker. Someone's just going to follow me around. And their job is when I go, ah, they just scream, breathe in. And I'll go, ah, and I'll live forever. You know? And, and so, it, you know, she laughed about it, but it kind of became a way of living because so much of life, when you do suffer mental health problems. So I don't just have depression. I've got major depressive disorder, suicidal tendencies and psychotic breaks. And those are just like the top three in a, in a best of list that's quite long. Um, and so one of the first things is just breathe in, you know, the don't ever make a permanent decision to what is probably going to be a, a temporary state. I mean, like, I'm never not going to have depression. I'm never not going to struggle with that stuff. But there's good days and bad days. And, and the worst thing you can do is say, well, today's my bad day and this is it for eternity. So I'm going to end it, you know? So I actually have like dates written in, in sharp or in a like dry erase on my bathroom mirror where I go, today was a good day to my wife. And she goes, write it down. So I'll write down these dates. Um, just so if I'm having a bad day and I'm like, it's always been like this, it's always going to be like this. And my wife goes, go look at the mirror. That's not true. That's your depression. She calls it my depression goggles. She says, you're looking through your depression goggles. Everything's viewed through that lens. It all looks terrible. But the reality is, look, last Thursday, you had a good day. And and I, and because you're depressed or, you know, you're having this mental break, I'm like, it wasn't really a good day. I just lied. And she goes, no, <laughs> that's not how it worked. And, and, and that goes into kind of dovetails into the second thing. The first thing is don't make any permanent decisions in any temporary state. And I don't care if it's I'm super happy or I'm super sad, like, you know, don't ask the girl to marry you right after the best first date. Wait until that cools off a little and see if you still like the chick, you know, uh, because <laughs> when we're elated, when we're sad, we're crazy. We're not making good choices. So wait until that temporary state has abated. And then the second thing is make sure you have a support system. One of the one of the most 
leading causes of death, I think, for for people who 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 opt out is not the act of suicide itself. It's the the fact that they've isolated, you know, because we convince ourselves when we're in that stuff, like I'm, I'm in this terrible place. Nobody loves me. You know, they're taking pity on me. Everybody really thinks I'm a sad travesty of a, you know, I'm a waste of skin. And the only reason I have friends is because they're nice. They, I don't add anything to their life, you know? Um, and so we cut ourselves off from those people. And as soon as we cut ourselves off enough, Hey, it's convenient to out to, to take the easy way out. You know, there's literally been days where the, the reason I have not chosen to make a, a tremendously poor choice is like, I don't want my, my youngest son to, to see my body. And I don't want him to have that mental mess in his head for the rest of his life because his dad opted out. Um, and that's, that's not a great reason to continue existing. You know, like I don't want to inconvenience people. But if you take that away, if you take those people away, what have you got? You've got nothing. So it's not just having people actively care for you. It's just having people you're entangled with that your lack will inconvenience them. And sometimes that's enough, you know. And if you build up enough of those webs of relationships, it's not just going to be I'm going to inconvenience them. You will have people looking out for you. You know, I, I've had nights where I've been curled up in the corner and like looking for something. I don't want to get really really real and horrible, but this is life. You know, like I've been looking for something to poke a hole in my neck with. And my wife is the one there saying, don't, we're here. You can't do this to us. You can't do this to the kids. You can't do this to you. If it was just me all by myself, if I had successfully cut myself off, I, I guarantee you I'd be dead in a ditch right now. I would not be talking to you. So that's a really long answer, but I think they're important. You know, the first thing, don't make those permanent choices. And the second thing, have relationships be out there with people. Um, and, and, and some of us, I'm an introvert. You don't have to be a party person, but whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, I don't call them introverts or extroverts. Actually, I call them social hummingbirds and social <laughs> um, anacondas. And what I mean by that is a hummingbird has to eat every two minutes or it dies. Anaconda, you know, you can eat a big meal and then be fine for six months. Um, but either way, if they don't eat at all, they die. And that's what we are with relationships. Like some of us need it constantly to nourish us. And that's your kind of extrovert. And then there's people like me. I need to interact with Parker, you know, even just online. I need to interact with my wife even just a minute or two. And that does me. I can be alone for a while and be very happy. But as soon as I completely wall off and Parker goes away and my wife goes away and the people at church and the people I, you know, my family and the people I care for go away, you start to die of malnutrition, of, of emotional malnutrition. And, it, and it's it's a creeping disease for us introverts because like I'm used to not eating for six months. What's six months in a day? And that's when you make that bad decision. So, you know, reach out and make sure you're, you're joyfully entangled with all the inconveniences <laughs> of relationships. I love that. First of all, thank you so much for, for breaking that down. That's a lot of great advice. And honestly, if someone is listening who's really struggling, I would advise them to like re-listen to that um, anytime they need to, you know, just to give them that hope. Uh, but also, I love what you said about just embracing, you know, kind of the inconveniences. Like they, you might not think they're great, but they're super helpful. And yeah, you got to be open-minded and kind of get out of your head a little bit. Um, I think with the isolation thing we just get two in our thoughts and we get two in our heads. And I'd imagine that happens to you a lot too with, 
your writing and oh yeah spending a lot of time creating the stories and stuff especially in in horror um but it's also kind of a good outlet too so yeah. you've got those two things that you that you mentioned but then the third thing might be for people to have or find their creative outlets um how has i guess writing helped you and in your stories um how much of the story is kind of like i'm sure you get this question all the time but how much of of the story is kind of like actually you right well you know it, it's funny i think any any creative person i'm sure you know this too it's such a it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand it, it's something to live for it's something that gives us joy we feel like we're creating something we're we're providing value to the world there's like I, you know i don't know that i care about leaving a mark upon the world like how will they remember me after i'm gone but i'd like to make the world better now at the very least and and if you're out there trying to tell stories or sing songs or create sculpture or whatever your artistic outlet is um if you're trying to create things that you believe are of benefit to the world then that's a good thing you know the flip side is i think every creator is is this really strange mix of narcissism and cripplingly low self-esteem you know we're all like i'm going to change the world and then at the very next moment you're like i suck i'll never be any good you know someone comes up to me at a comic con there's like a line of people waiting to sign get my signature and the person walks up and puts the book down it's like you're michael brent collings and literally i like lean back because i don't want this guy to punch me like he's clearly gonna go you wasted my time you're awful boom you know and <laughs> what what that's so stupid and ludicrous but it still is something inside me um and i think a lot of creative people grapple with that so it's wonderful but i think one of the big problems we have as creative people is is defining ourselves that way i think if you define yourself um you know in terms of a relationship to something bigger your family unit god something outside you know country something that's outside you that if you were to go it would continue. Defining ourselves with those relationships, I think, is a pretty good idea. Um, obviously, assuming it's a good thing, you know, if you're like, oh, I define myself in terms of my Hitler youth affiliation, that's not awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're if you're trying to be good and have those good, bigger picture things, that's great. But when we say, oh, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm a beatboxer, you know, like I, I still am blown away. I still watch with my kids, like some of the stuff you do, because like, I can't believe it. It's magic. <laughs> um, it really is. It's so cool. But I think if we define ourselves that way, it really boxes us in because if I'm a writer and my books aren't selling, what does that mean? It means I'm a failure. Um, if I'm a singer and my albums aren't selling, I'm a failure, you know? So I prefer one, one thing too, is if you are creative, don't define yourself with your creative, with your creativity, definitions are boundaries, you know? So as soon as you define yourself, you put a boundary on your ability to be great. And you, and you say, I can only be great within the tiny, tiny area called writing. And if I fail at that, that's the sum total of my existence versus like, for me, I'm like, well, I try and think of myself as a dad and a husband and a child of God and things like that. And those I can succeed at, whether people are reading my books or not. And that also allows me like, hey, if I need to walk away from writing someday, I can because it's not who I am. It's a thing I do and it's a thing I enjoy and I and that pays the bills. But if it stops paying the bills and I stop enjoying it, it's a weird thing. I think like if you're a doctor, 
you can say, I'm going to go be a janitor for a middle school because I found my bliss and live my truth. And everyone's like, oh, he's so brave, you know. But if you're an artist, you know, and you go, uh, I, I'm unhappy writing. So I'm going to go to medical school. Everyone's like, whoa, what a failure, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, I, I've decided I'm trading up. I'm going to I'm going to have a real grown up job and like better dental care than a crack whore. It'll be awesome. <laughs> and, you know, and we but because we define ourselves as this artist rather than as something bigger, um, we get boxed in and it can be really depressing. So, you know, I always kind of counsel people, who, especially who are starting out, like, don't buy into that trap. Say this is something I'm good at and maybe I'll make some money at it. Um, and as long as it makes me happy, I'll do it. And if it stops making me happy, hey, I'll find something else. I'll pivot and find something else that makes me happy. Yes, absolutely love that. And that kind of goes against the grain of like what people will find if they YouTube stuff, right? Yeah. That's been oh something I personally have struggled with recently, just in full openness about the podcast. I was doing it and it was making me happy, but was I making money? No. Mm -hmm. But I want, yeah. I did have so much other amazing things come from that and building an amazing network and all kinds of speaking events and whatever. Um, but I got in my head about not having a specific niche. And when people yeah. were asking me like, oh, I like, what's your podcast about? I'm like, it's called Upbeat. It's supposed to make people happy. It's like, well, who's it for? And I was, and I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like right. I was like, oh, I thought man. everyone was supposed to be happy. <laughs> it's for the world, you fool. Yeah, so I've been trying <laughs> to get more niche, and it's weird. The more niche I get, it's more actually true to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Side hustlers who are feeling stuck and are struggling mentally, you know, and I am getting there, but I love what you said about you know, definitions are boundaries, and that kind of is what everybody is told is to define exactly what it is they're doing. And that is, I mean, it's a real kind of mental prison, real kind of mental trap. And so it's about pushing through that and just doing what actually is going to bring you happiness and push you through yeah. those times. Yeah. Um, I love the story of John Lennon. I think John Lennon, you know, he's a fabulously talented human being, but also, you know, deeply screwed up in a lot of ways. But a thing he said <laughs> that I thought was really, really cool. He said he had a a test when he was younger and and the teacher said what do you want to be when you grow up and he wrote happy and the teacher said you didn't understand the question and his response was you don't understand the answer um because that's what we should be going for and and happiness is a weird thing too because happiness used to mean like how can i find contentment being productive and being a net benefit to other people i think a trap that we have fallen into today with you know because you're talking about youtube kind of mentality, which is everyone wants to be a star. Everyone wants to live their truth. Everyone wants to find their bliss. And, and I a hundred percent support that a hundred percent. You do whatever you want to do. The only caveat I would add is you better live on a desert Island all by yourself. If that's how you're going to live, because that, that is an inherently selfish way to live. You know, I'm going to get out there and do whatever makes me happy. You're saying, and I don't care what it does to other people. And that is going to isolate you. You know, people who are chasing after happiness in that way find themselves isolated um, and they find themselves angry like everybody's arrayed against them. And I go, well, of course they are. You've shown yourself to be a sociopath, basically. I'm going to like hurt anybody I need to. I always am. I don't want to judge. I really don't. So this is like I'm trying to walk a fine line here because I don't understand 
um, the things that are going on in others' heads, but I'm certainly saddened when somebody goes, well, I decided I was a different person than I was when I married this person, you know, my spouse. And so my answer was I changed and I left them emotionally destroyed, the children a wreck, you know, just everything destroyed. Um, and I'm not saying everybody who leaves a spouse or who changes their life is doing that. I want to be really clear, but there's a lot of people out there who's like, well, I'm not happy. So I'm going to be happy and I don't care if it devastates everybody around me. And that works in the short term. But again, you mark yourself as somebody who is selfish and in it for you. Um, and people notice that after a while. They're like, well, I'm living my truth too. So we'll be happy together as long as we agree. And if not, the battle lines are drawn. You're going to be enemies and you're going to be isolated versus, you know, I like when I, when I'm talking about like finding your happiness and defining yourself in terms of something bigger, I'm not talking about your, you know, who you paint yourself as. I'm talking about the sense of community that you can find by getting out there and improving other people's life experiences. And I think that's one of the greatest things about art, you know, art at its core is creating communities. That's what we do. Nobody has a conversation, you know, in line at Carl's Jr. about like, I'm team Chris cut fries. I'm team curly fries. I'm team straight fries. You don't have that conversation. And if I walk in and start talking to a 16 year old girl like that, she's going to call the police, right? Because I'm being <laughs> creepy. But if I walk in and, you know, after the last Twilight movie reboot comes out and I'm like, so are you team vampire, team werewolf? She's going to be like, totally werewolf, you know? And all of a sudden we're best friends, same exact location. We're still staying in Carl's Jr. But the difference is we have a community that's been created by an artist. Um, and that's a really cool thing that we can do as creators is make good communities that stand for good things, that, that encourage people to join versus being exclusive. I think exclusive fandoms are super sad and toxic. Um, and they're most toxic of all for the people who create them. You know, I'd rather be an inclusive person where if you don't want to read my book because you don't like horror, I'm like, cool, awesome. What do you like to read? We'll talk about that too. Because I'm a storyteller. That's what I, I would rather just be a good storyteller. Um, and I'd even rather just be a good human. So let's be friends. Um, I think that creators can really do that. But there's all these traps for us. There's these mental inhibitions where, no, I'm a writer. So I got to sell a certain number of books. Um, no, I'm an edgy writer, so I have to piss off a certain number of people. Oh, I follow my muse, so I don't really care what it does uh, to my audience. No, I think we have to think about others. You find your truth, you find your bliss, that's cool, but you don't just go out and live like that. You, The next step is to think, how is this going to affect the people around me? And, and what can I do to mitigate its effect if it's damaging or to bring them along so it helps them as well? Absolutely love that. And then to kind of connect the dots with earlier in the conversation about, you know, struggling with mental health and hanging on that one more day, oftentimes it comes with, you know, gratitude and serving other people, like having that yeah. mindset of just getting outside of you a little bit and, and focusing on others. That's where like fulfillment lies, you know? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I, you know, I, I am happy when I write the end for like five minutes and then I get depressed. My <laughs> wife and I call it PMS. It's my post manuscript syndrome. I get really sad. And like, you know, I just finished this massive project and I should be thrilled. And so I'm like, this is the worst day of my life, you know? Um, but and then I take my kids and my family, we go like we went and, and 
assembled packages that were lunch packages for kids across the world who don't have lunches. It was free lunch packages that are shipping out everywhere. And we spent four hours just, it was kind of exhausting because it was like rapid fire scooping of beans and rice, trying to keep up with it, <laughs> trying to, you know, get as much done as possible. Um, and I felt better doing that for four hours than I do after six months of a book. Or, after, you know, if I see number one bestseller, I'm like, yay. And I immediately goes, I immediately go, what do I, now I have to get back to work. I can't fail. I got to be better. Um, versus getting out there and helping people and putting lunches together for kids. I'm like, this is awesome. You know, this is where it's at. This is what I hope defines me is my service to others. Not that I'm a writer, but that I'm trying to be a genuinely helpful human. Yeah. See, I think that's awesome. And it's really in line with the, the message of this upbeat podcast. You know, it's just finding joy in the journey and finding out how to trigger like being upbeat through hard times and and just being overall better um and improving every single day and not focus so much on the on the bs <laughs> that can yeah. that can be so easy to focus on i mean every single time you open up your phone or TikTok or whatever like you're gonna see things that just immediately make you feel like crap or like you're not succeeding and uh we need to kind of grab real life again and and earth ourselves and things that actually matter. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, TikTok's awesome. You know, Facebook's cool, whatever. I'm on it all the time because it's part of my job. I will say I got off it for almost a year and I, it was very liberating uh, because it's, it's genuinely detrimental to most people's mental health to be on that stuff. So when I say TikTok's awesome and Facebook's awesome, there's a wealth of information there in and of itself. It has no positive value. You know, I mean, people go, oh, I connected with friends and I go, cool. What's your next door neighbor's name? Because if you connected with your fate, you know, your your high school buddy from 30 years ago that you kind of had a crush on and you're <laughs> checking periodically to see if their marriage is still working out, that's not a good thing. You know, go next door and just offer to mow your neighbor's lawn and say, Yeah, I know it's embarrassing. I've lived here for six years, but I thought it was time I came over and introduced myself. You know, <laughs> you're, you're gonna have more benefit from that than you are from a hundred or a thousand likes. Um, and those people who have these stellar careers, like you look at Mr. Beast, um, who my kids enjoy watching and occasionally they'll kind of like pin me down and go, you got to watch this. And, and I go, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, I suspect I'll have more people at my funeral than Mr. Beast would not because I'm better or anything like that, but because like I try and have interactions with people who live near me and Mr. Beast has this massive following and that's, and, and I'm, and I mean this, I'm not like knocking Mr. Beast. He's just a, He's a super popular um, name, so everybody knows. Yeah, him. for the example. Um, yeah, so you know, I, it, he seems like a cool guy, and he seems like he's he's trying to do good things. So I don't want to sound denigrative, denigrating him at all. Um, but like, who's? Do you think those followers, those billions of people who watch him, are going to just be like, "Oh, he died. Where's the funeral?" No, they'll be sad, um, but they weren't connected heart to heart. You know, he wasn't a part of their actual life experience in its most significant sense. Um, you know, if I pass away, yeah, my neighbor's going to show up at the funeral um, because he's my friend and I'm his friend. And, you know, he texts me, he goes, we're going out of town. Can you take out the trash? Absolutely. You know, I have his, <laughs> I have the code to get into his house. I can go, he's always got good sodas. There's been a couple of times where I was like, I want to go steal <laughs> all the stuff from his mini fridge. Um, but they're just such great people. And, and that kind of thing is going to lend a lot more happiness. And also, you know, if you are creative, that stuff is good for your career. 
couple of years back, the market shifted as it does, you know, just trying to stay ahead of technology and changes in the algorithm and the way different platforms sell art is exhausting in and of itself. And a couple of years back, my platform shifted and overnight, like most of my friends lost 80% of their income. It just disappeared because Amazon changed some things. And we were all struggling with that. And I kind of went, I can't do this. I'm going to have to go deliver pizza because I can't afford to take care of my family. And I announced my retirement to the three people that I thought would probably care. And immediately I started getting texts and emails from big authors who were saying, no, you can't leave. What do we need to do to keep you in this business? And I want to be clear, that's not because I'm a Nobel laureate. I'm not a paragon of literature. I didn't change their lives every day. You know, it was just like I was kind of a cool guy and I tried to be nice to them and they wanted niceness around them. Um, so people really undersell the business value of kindness of getting out there and making those connections. You know, if I've been out there digging a ditch in your house, trying to save your house from a flood and then, um, and I have a million followers on, on YouTube and then my business goes under, the million followers are going to go away. The person who's, who I dug a ditch for is going to be there saying, how can I help? So, you know, just in terms of very much selfish, pragmatic business strategy, getting out there and being nice bears more benefits than being a successful, whatever it is in our virtual landscape. Yeah, I think that is super that's a good like perspective shift for for me and for everyone listening, you know. It's kind of that encouragement to focus on just you know the validity and like the the what really matters meter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like where does it rank in and at in the grand scheme of things, you know, like in yeah. life in time on earth, like what matters more? Um and sometimes you can't just, I've used this example a lot recently, but you can't just, uh, you, you don't have analytics for all those things. It's just life, you know? Yeah. yeah. Go and go to the supermarket and try and spend your likes, you know, like walk up and put a <laughs> gallon of milk down and go, I have a million followers. And they're going to be like, it's still three dollars. Well, it's still $18, whatever, you know, <laughs> milk is outrageous. <laughs> Everything is so expensive now, but they're not going to accept that. You know, they expect money. Um, and, you know, I remember going to, to Target and we had lost, I'd lost my job. I had done all this work to try and be a grown up, And I didn't want to be that 40 year old guy living in his mom's basement being like, any day I'm going to make it baby, you know? And so of course <laughs> I lose my job and I end up where my parents' basement with my whole family. Um, and I went to Target and I needed diapers for my son, uh, our, our baby. And, and I, I missed it by like 16 cents. I couldn't afford it. And I'm standing there with this box of diapers and this kid I'm holding who's screaming and literally has poop in his diaper right now. Like this is a current situation. Yeah. And this, this teenage checker just stares at me. And it was the worst feeling in the world. There was nothing I could do short of run out with the diapers, you know, just like try and straight up hit and run kind of style diaper change. Um, <laughs> the person behind me pulls out a quarter and just puts it down. And like, it was nothing to them. They just probably, maybe they're a great person or maybe they just wanted the line to move again. I don't know, but either way that meant the world to me. And that was, that's the kind of thing that matters. You know, those little moments where we reach out and change somebody. 
Um, and I guarantee you, anybody who's facing that, who's lived without food, who's not been able to buy supplies for their kids or for themselves, you know, and you're like, oh, but you have, you have a million followers. I'll trade all of those for diapers. I'll trade all of those for a quarter to take care of my family. Um, and, and I think some of that perspective just comes with age. You know, I'm older than most kids sitting there on their phones, doom scrolling. Um, and for me, it's still tough. So I can't imagine being a 16 year old girl and you're like, my entire world revolves around if my legs are proportioned properly compared to my favorite TikToker, <laughs> you know, um, that's just a rough way to live. And it's a dangerous way to live. And, and getting out there is the only antidote, antidote is turn off your screen, go out and do something nice for somebody, meet your neighbor, do a kind thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to be freaking Mother Teresa. I spent four hours packing food and I was like, dude, I saved a hundred lives today. You know, it doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't take a lot to be a hero and being a hero, man, that's a good feeling. It really is. Yeah. And that's like that fulfillment, you know, just versus the more material like success or temporal success, like however you want to put it. But, um, well, I want to, I want to kind of ask some writing questions here and awesome. also maybe some more spiritual questions. I'm trying to decide which way I want to go with it, but <laughs> I know you mentioned, or I'll go with the spiritual one. I know you mentioned uh, earlier too, just in hanging on and, and being better. You mentioned your belief in God. And so I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you, and this is a, a kind of initiative of my podcast too, is I want more conversations about like real core, good values, also kind of Christian faith-based, you know, tactical advice for people um, how has your relationship with God helped you get to where you are today? Um, so I have a complicated relationship with God and in part mostly because of my mental health issues, because literally one of the symptoms of one of my ailments is a feeling of persecution from higher powers. It's literally, it's in like the DSM, it's in the, yeah. the manual that defines this disease. Um, it was kind of nice to find that out, actually, because I was like, oh, that really makes me feel better because I just thought God hated me periodically. And now I can kind of go, oh, that is my that's my depression goggles. You know, one of the things is I look up and I don't see angels. I see some guy with a pitchfork just jabbing me and being like, ha ha ha. There's some days where you, everybody I feel like I think feels that way, you know, like looks up and go, why, why me? You know, um, anybody who's a believer, if you're and I, I can't speak to people who don't believe in that stuff. Um, maybe they just look at the universe and go, you suck. Um, but I feel like we all have those moments where we just feel crushed by a higher power. And again, so much of it is saying, uh, I'm still breathing in and out and that's a gift, you know, and, and today sucks. Um, I really get frustrated with people who are like, oh, if you prayed harder, if you had more faith, you'd be happier. And I kind of want to go, how dare you? Next time you see somebody who's fallen on the ski slopes and has like a bone, sticking out of their skin and you walk over and go, well, if you pray a little harder, that bone would suck in and you could just walk it off. We don't say that to people um, who have cancer or who have a broken bone. We might pray for them. We might try and bless them. You know, there's my faith believes in healing and stuff like that. Um, but you don't stand there and go, well, the bone didn't suck in. I guess you're going to hell. That's not how we operate. Um, but when somebody's having a bad day, so many people of faith go, oh, well, you need to have more faith. You need to try harder. And I'm like, it does not work that way. You know, God sends us all, I think, to earth. This is my belief, you know, and I don't want to like push it on others. But you asked. So you made the mistake yeah. of asking. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think part of what God puts us here for is experiencing these trials, you know, um, similar, I go to the gym, um, and you don't get any benefit out of the gym unless you hurt yourself. That's literally how you build muscle is you tear your muscles apart. Um, and then they rebuild. And I think God, there's something of that with him, you know, he was like, yeah, this hurts right now. Get through it. I'll help you get through it. Um, and, and, and part of what people don't like about that idea is like, well, how could a loving God let bad things happen? And that is a legitimately frustrating question for a lot of people. And my response is if this life was all there was, I would have no qualms about saying God is a turd. God is an a-hole because obviously he's just a kid with a magnifying glass next to an anthill and we're the ants, you know, um, because life is unfair. But I do believe this life isn't all there is. And my hope is that the big picture, the eternal perspective is it does even out. It does fare out. You know, the good people get their reward and the bad people get their desserts. And and that helps me get through the day, too, because if you don't have faith, you look around and you know what? Life is still just as unfair, but there's no answer. It just stays unfair. And for me, I can go, well, yeah, today is unfair and tomorrow is unfair. And the next hundred years are going to be unfair. But my hope is that after that, it continues. This isn't the end. And so, yeah, a hundred years of unfairness. But when you put that against an eternity of everything worked out the way it was supposed to, it seems to seem a little better, you know? Um, yeah, lifting that weight, oh, it was so uncomfortable. And having a trainer scream, <laughs> get it off, pick it up. You're a wuss, you know, and screaming. You're like, that's not pleasant. Nobody likes that being screamed at by someone who's telling them they're a failure. But then, oh, you put it up, you made, you know, you made the progress, your muscles are a little bit bigger and you wouldn't take that back. You wouldn't go to the trainer. Hey, could you be nicer to me? Because you see the result. And, and so that's something that my faith allows is, is that sense of perspective. And, and I haven't set foot on the other side. I didn't have a near death experience and see my grandma waving to me in heaven or anything like that. This is my faith and this is my hope. But I think there's validity to it if for no other reason then it gets me through some of those days. There's days where I believe God gave me life and I believe God is the one who gets to take it. And some days that's made the difference too, is just saying, no, I'm not going to put a razor against my wrist because that's not my privilege. That's not my right. I don't get to make that choice. I, that's up to God. Um, and I know that's thorny theological ground. So I'm not trying to talk about the death penalty and I'm not trying to talk <laughs> about big social issues i make this clear. This is Michael Brent's thoughts about Michael Brent. Um, but, you know, it got me through that day. So I think there's some value in that. Yeah, there's some huge value in that. And I think uh, faith in general, whether like whatever anyone's belief listening to this, faith in something is what can pull us through those hard times. And uh, for you and for me, it's God. And uh, I think a lot of people listening too, but... Um, you got to hold on to something and you, you got to have something. Yeah. And you mentioned too, uh, like a support system and family, like there's just things that have to be besides yourself. That's going to help yeah. pull you through those, those times. So thanks yeah. for sharing that. And then, um, I wanted to kind of move into some writing too, but yeah, um, this is more passion based. Cause, uh, this again, big part of upbeat is people pursuing their passions, regardless of how weird it is. <laughs> and I think I think you are a really great person to ask ask you know because I'm so weird <laughs> not because not because you're weird but because you know writing horror 
is just not what you hear every day, you know? And yeah. you've, you've had to have had experiences where people are just like, okay, you know, like go for it, dude. And you're, <laughs> and you feel weird. Right. But at the end of the day, we, we can do those things that we're feeling called to do. And we can do those things that we feel passionate about. Yeah. Um, so what's been something that kind of and pushes you along that journey, even with the naysayers? Well, you know, I do get that. It, it's not so much that the horror people, when I was a kid, I'm old enough that like, if you brought a Stephen King book to school, you would probably be sent to the counselor's office because I, when I was a real little kid, that was still kind of trashy stuff. And it showed you might have some kind of a perverse mentality. So people literally got sent to the principal for bringing Stephen King into the, into the school. And now horror has a lot less stigma to it. Generally, it's a lot more open and people are a lot more um, accepting of it as literature. Um, partly, honestly, because of my dad, my dad was an academic and he devoted most of his career to writing books about horror saying they have validity as literature. So he wrote, he was literally the world expert on Stephen King for 20 years. He, um, wow. he wrote the first book length scholarly dissertation about King and he followed it up with 12 or 13 more books. So we grew up with that in our house as a way of life and not saying it's something to be hidden under the, you know, like it goes with the dirty magazines and, or nowadays it goes with my piece of paper with my porn password or whatever under my mattress. Um, <laughs> it was just like, Oh, I read this really cool literature today called the stand. Let me tell you about it, kids. Um, and so I grew up thinking that it was fine. And it, the, and by the time I started outing myself as a horror writer, cause I was making money at it. Um, everyone was kind of like, yeah, that's cool. The thing that twitches people is where I go. Also, I taught Sunday school last week. You know, that's where they go like, ah, how does that work? Um, <laughs> and, and most of the people in my church, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And most people are actually really cool about it. You know, like you, you get a lot of people who are like, oh, I bet they yell and scream and fire and brimstone. And most people are, they're fine. I actually go see scary movies with my bishop all the time. You know, like that's because people are pretty cool with it. I do occasionally get somebody who kind of goes, really? You, you're right. Horror, you know? And, and I can see it processing. Like, am I, especially when they just said, Hey, that was a really good Sunday school lesson. And then they find out and they're like, wait, do I have to retract that compliment or, um, and when I tell people with that situation, I go, you know, let me tell you the scariest book I ever read. And they go, I don't like horror. And I go, I'll keep it, you know, PG. We're not going to mess you up or anything. But I do want to tell you this because um, I say it's it's a kind of a typical horror story, which they tend to be about an everyman, just kind of a normal person. Nobody thinks twice about they find themselves in extraordinary and dangerous, horrific circumstances, um, you know, be it an axe murderer or a poltergeist or whatever. And in this case, it's um it's kind of the most horrific because it's a reality kind of a horror. It's this guy who um, he is falsely accused of these crimes he doesn't commit. Um, he gets imprisoned. He's tortured horribly. All the people he thought loved him become his enemies. And then they nail him to a cross. And at this point, the person I'm talking to is like, oh, wait a second. I know this story. Um, and I go, yeah, you know, the Bible's a horror story. You, you cannot look at the descriptions of what happens to Jesus and to so many of the, the people who follow him and not think that's horrific. Um, but it's a redemptive horror story. And, and that's what I try and write. And so I say, if, if it just ended with, and then he was tortured and crucified, the end. 
close the Bible and walk away. First of all, it's kind of a bummer. Second of all, I don't think it's going to be able to be very moving as a religious experience. Um, but it doesn't end like that. And instead it goes, and three days later he rose, you know. So essentially the monster was defeated. And in the Bible, the monster is Satan. It's death and it's it's uh, sin and all the things that we learn about in Sunday school. But that's applicable in the horror stories we write um, in our world today. You know, horror gets to talk about God because if you have a devil and you call a priest to exercise the devil, you are sticking yourself with both feet into religious philosophies, into theology and thoughts about metaphysics and what's beyond this. Um, so that's one of the coolest things about horror. I actually say horror is the most moral of all the genres because there's no other genre that's equipped to say, okay, we're going to talk about capital G good and capital E evil and what they mean to us as the little people running around under the angels and the demons. Um, so, you know, usually when I explain that, the people who, they might not say, oh, I'm going to go read a horror book. And that's fine because <laughs> you don't have to. We're all different. And that's one of the joys of life. I don't want everyone to like horror. I want some people to like nothing but romance. And I want some people to love Twilight and other people to love Shakespeare. You know, that's that's what makes life delicious is all those different seasons, seasonings. Um, but I do want people to appreciate each other. You know, I I do not like cheeseburgers. But I look at my wife's cheeseburger and I go, to me, that looks hideous. <laughs> but But I have started saying, I go, but that looks like it's probably a good looking cheeseburger to people who like cheeseburgers. Um, and that's just my saying, like, I wouldn't eat it, but I'm glad you're enjoying it so much, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think you can walk. A lot of people put these false um, dichotomies down that you have to, like, be this or that, that you have to be religious or accepting, that you have to be agnostic or intolerant, you know, like, and it's just not true. We're, we're such complicated creatures. I feel really bad for religious people who get painted with all the ills of their religion ever done, you know, and I feel bad for uh, atheists and agnostics who get painted with every nasty thing any atheist or agnostic said. I'm like, that's just, that's just a classy way of being a bigot, you know, on both sides of that. Um, and I would prefer to get to know somebody and say, hey, you and I don't agree on some things, but like 99% of what we're about is pretty similar. So I'm going to try and I'm going to try and help you to be happy the best way I know how. And failing that, if you're not accepting or interested, I'm going to try and make you be happy the best way you want to be. And, and I think if we pursue life like that, there's a lot more common ground than the internet comment section would have us believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sharing your story, man. And, and that really unique perspective, you know, that got me thinking you know, the gears turning um, with that story of, you know, the Bible and and how in pretty much anything you can find the good and bad. And yeah, and it teaches us, you know, not to just judge right out right out the gate. And yeah. uh, too many of us, all of us probably are guilty of that. And oh, I'll tell you, sure. I'll tell you in kind of a humorous but truthful way, I was guilty of that when I met you. <laughs> because <laughs> we were in that dark auditorium man and about to get on the stage at the tedx event and i shook your hand i was like oh what do you do you know and you're like oh i, I write horror and i'm like oh crap what am i 
going to get into with this speech. Right. And, but He's what I loved murder me later. <laughs> right. Well, what I loved about your speech that I remember too is throughout the whole time you had everybody laughing. It mm -hmm. was a, it was a, it was like a comedy thing and, a, <laughs> and, and a really motivational speech, you know? And I think that it was just really a perfect delivery. Um, I don't remember the, do you mind uh, telling what the name is so people can look it up on, Ted, um, on it YouTube? It was called Confessions of a Supervillain, The Psychosis of Lies. It really was a good one. And it just, I love that uniqueness and, sh and changing our perspectives. And it gives us something different to think about. And when, you know, you're in kind of this space that I'm in, everything's just kind of the fluffy, fluff, motivational stuff that we hear all the time <laughs> right. and this is and this is a really unique perspective so it's been awesome oh thank you so much that's so nice i really appreciate that that was an, uh, not what i came on here for but you know i'll take the compliment <laughs> well hopefully you got out of it what you came here for too <laughs> yeah no i this has been a delightful experience i really appreciate you um you know we we tried to do this a couple years back so i'm glad that that we finally made it work together. And I'm, I'm glad you're back in the saddle again doing this. I think, um, you know, if I, if I could just one last thing, you know, uh -huh. creators, creators who are not in their, the place they want to be in their career, um, often have this depressive thought of like, the world would not notice if I left, the world would be no different if I was gone, if I hung up, you know, my microphone, if I put away my computer, and I do want to say the world will notice, you know, like, especially, again, if you're happier doing something else, go do something else. But if you're finding joy in this creative outlet, do that. It doesn't have to be to make a million bucks. It can be your joyful hobby. Um, and similarly, you know, if, if heaven forbid, somebody's like, I'm going to, I'm going to out my, I'm going to take myself out of the equation. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to do something, you know, permanent um, because no one will care people will, the world notices that. And on a base level, and I, I'm serious, if this keeps people alive, awesome. It's just inconvenient. Nobody's ever been like, oh, I found a guy who killed himself today. It was a great day. But beyond that, in all seriousness, I think when people, people are so miraculous. I've met tens of thousands of people. I've never met anybody who didn't have amazing stories to share, amazing experiences to uplift, and an amazing soul that would leave a void for its loss. Um, the, the people around you will notice the world will notice we are all these bright shining lights and we, we need bright shining lights. It's a dark time. It's a scary time. So, you know, don't snuff out that flame, shine a little brighter instead of like blowing out the candle, walk outside and burn bright for somebody else. Get out of yourself and say, Hey, whose way can I light today? Um, because that's the way you will find value really really love that and yeah there's always there's always another day I, I just as you were sharing that i was reminded yeah. of what you shared earlier with your wife and like writing down the good days and remembering like in the moment it freaking sucks but there's always going to be something else and it's not ever going to happen if you're not here so yeah. it's important yeah. to to just live it out and do our best yeah 100 percent Awesome. Well, on a much brighter note, um, do you mind if I beatbox your name real quick? <laughs> oh, I would love that. I would love that. You're going to close out the, the podcast that way, but yeah. Nice.
That's so cool. That's so cool. (laughs) Hey, thanks, man, for being on Upbeat. Really appreciate you. Thank you. This was great. Thank you. Anytime.